0: morning. Uh, my name's Matt. If uh, I haven't had a chance to meet you, great to have you here. Uh, we are going to be in the book of Hosea uh, again, so I encourage you to can flip open to that. Uh, but we're going to begin with the word of prayer. Uh, it's Remembrance Day this week, uh, obviously. And so it's an opportunity uh, to pray for those in service of our country, uh, the families of those in service of our country. And I want to just pray for peace. Uh, we are we live in a country that is largely peaceful, but we know that <clears throat> that's not true all over the world, and so it's an opportunity to, to pray for that as well. So would you join me uh, as we do that? Heavenly Father, you are a God who is sovereign. You are a God who is powerful. Uh, you are a God who is good, and, uh, and your Son is, is the Prince of Peace, and uh, we are thankful for the peace, Jesus, that you bring into our lives as individuals. We're thankful for the peace that our our country enjoys um, because you are sovereign over it, but uh, in large part, practically because of those who have fought to defend it. Uh, so we want to remember them and honor them and thank you for them. Uh, we want to pray, Lord, for, for those uh, families who have um, lost loved ones to military service, um, uh, perhaps in in civil service, in the police, something like that, Lord. Uh, This is a week where we remember and honor them and thank you for them and want to pray for comfort for their family. Uh, Lord, we want to pray for the continued um, opposition against evil and tyranny in the world. And we thank you that there are are men and women still as part of our country who have um, gone into service to to defend us as a nation if necessary, but also to seek to bring justice and peace throughout the world. And so we pray for them. We pray for your protection upon them. Pray for comfort and provision for them. And uh, we do, again, pray that there would be peace. We know, Lord Jesus, that that will not uh, fully come until you return. And so you are our hope for that. But we do pray in the meantime that all of those leaders who are intent on on bringing violence and, and tyranny against their people are intent on uh, provoking wars and conflicts, Lord, that they would uh, lose their seat of power. And so God, we pray for those who are under oppression right now. We pray for those who haven't enjoyed really any measure of peace for a long time. Uh, we pray again for the, the conflict over the Ukraine, Lord. We pray, God, that you would, you would comfort the people, in particular your people, Lord, who know you as Savior and Lord. We pray, God, that you would encourage their faith and encourage them to share the peace that they have, even in the midst of conflict. So. So please, Lord, would you help us to remember these things this week, and uh, I pray even now as we turn our attention to your word that we would grow in peace, we would grow in understanding of the sin within us that brings conflict and the peace that you bring to the cross. So I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, uh, we're in Hosea chapter 5, we're going to be doing uh, verses 1 to 15 today. I'd like to begin, though, by talking about discipline. Uh, when it comes to parenting, discipline is one of uh, the most important parts of the job, but it is also one of the most difficult. Uh, the challenge of discipline isn't just that kids, you know, don't obey, and that they push back, and that they talk back, and, and all of those things. That is, that is challenging, that is irritating, Uh, But the real challenge of discipline is that to effectively discipline someone, you need to give them uh, some sort of impactful consequence. And for a consequence to be impactful, it needs to cause some level of distress or discomfort or even pain in the life of that child. That's the whole idea behind discipline. Discipline is when a parent notices that a child is doing something bad and because they love them, they... They try to help that child to make a connection between that bad behavior or bad attitude and the negative effects it will have in their life. So when, when they see something that is maybe even small, they know where it's going to lead. They, they bring a consequence so that there will be a negative association between that thing because they know what's going to happen. Stealing, stealing a cookie now doesn't seem like a big deal, but if left unchecked, it will lead to shoplifting, grand larceny, all those <laughs> kinds of larger theft. That's not, not a good thing. Uh, lying lying now, even about small things, uh, will probably lead to this child becoming an untrustworthy person if they're used to lying to get their way. Having tantrums now will result in Having tantrums when you're an adult, which we know can happen if you've ridden an airplane. You know that, that there are people who don't get their way and they, they, they freak out because they're, they're just used to being selfish and demanding people and no one has pushed back on that. So the whole idea of discipline is, look, I love you. I don't want that for you, so I'm going to give you a consequence when you act that way to help you to see that it's wrong and help to shape your heart. It seems simple, but uh, any parent will tell you it is, it is not easy. Uh, you, can, you can err on, in, on both sides of this. Uh, we can be too harsh as parents. Instead of bringing constructive discipline, we can bring harsh punishment, which is usually more about us, usually more about us trying to exact some sort of pound of flesh for all the inconvenience or whatever it is. That's not, that's not loving discipline. But we can make the opposite mistake as well. Instead of disciplining, there are some parents who simply distract their children, Uh, simply um, placate them by, you know, giving constant toys and treats and iPhones or devices and just just trying to keep them happy. They think if they can just redirect them from that that negative behavior to some positive actions, they assume that all of that positive reinforcement will, will somehow grow them into responsible members of society. I remember one dad uh, pushing back on me. I was teaching a class on discipline and, and he, was, he didn't, wasn't comfortable with his idea of discipline. He said, look, I want my daughter, I, I want her to know that I love her. And so I want all of our interactions to be positive so that she always knows that her dad loves her. And I, I just said, I'm not sure that that's actually loving to only ever give positive feedback. What happens when your, your daughter needs some discipline, needs a consequence? The most loving thing that we can do in the life of our child is to discipline them because it will result in their character growing and being shaped, for them to better identify the sin in their lives and and to see the, the righteous law of God as being helpful and good and beneficial. So, why am I beginning with this? Well, for two reasons. The first is because we are God's children. If you're a believer, you are a child of God. And because God is not confused about the nature of true and loving discipline, we see this in Hebrews 12:6: "For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives." The Lord is going to discipline us. In fact, our text today, all the way back in Hosea, is uh, all about God's discipline. It's, it's outlined in detail. And what I'm hoping we will see is that uh, the discipline of God to his people back then was loving for them, and it continues to be loving in our lives today. So we've got a lot of verses to get through. We're going to take them in chunks. Uh, The first four verses will, uh, will be where we start. So here's Hosea 5, verse 1. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For the judgment is for you, for you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor, and the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know, Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, o Ephraim, you have played the whore, Israel is defiled, their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. We'll stop there. You can see right away in verse 2, hopefully you saw that reference to discipline, God says, to the people who are clearly in sin, I will discipline all of them. But before we get to the discipline, let's make sure we see why the discipline is necessary. So there's three points today. Our first one is this. We, and by we I mean human beings, I mean God's people, we can become entrenched in sin. I'm using that word entrenched because uh, it seems pretty clear from these verses that the people weren't just dabbling in sin. We're just participating in sin. They were stuck in their sin. Uh, look at verses 3 and 4. Again, God says, I know Ephraim and Israel. These are uh, different uh, names of groups of people. It really means God's people. Okay, he's talking about God's people. I know them. They are not hidden from me, says God. For now, Ephraim, you've played the horror. Israel's defiled. That's their sin. But look at this verse. Their deeds, he says, do not permit them to return to their God. It's interesting, right? They seem, they seem to want to turn back to God, but their own deeds won't let them do it. It's kind of puzzling, right? You kind of wonder, what, what exactly does that mean? Like, how, how does that happen? Usually, usually, we are in control of our actions, not the other way around. Well, the idea here is, is that the more we give ourselves over to sin, the more power it has in our lives. With every small step into sin, the harder and harder it becomes to turn back. Uh, What it's saying and and showing here is that we aren't just kind of lured into sin. We are entrapped by it. And you see some of that language as it describes these these high places of false worship, Mizpah and Tabor. And the language there is about the people having become a snare or spreading a net. And so the the impression we get is not just that they've kind of allowed idolatry in their lives, they become entrapped by it. That as they participated in this false worship, it's, it's, it's ensnared them. This is what sin does when we persist in it. In fact, this happens in our lives today. I heard a story recently about a woman uh, who had a job as an assistant bartender. She was kind of telling her story in the 80s. Uh, she um, sold drink tickets, beer, wine, soft drinks, at this hotel. And um, the story was really about how she began to steal money... And it got out of hand. Now, she had no intention of stealing money when she took the job. She was uh, an accountant, wanted to be an accountant, couldn't find a job, so took this job as an assistant bartender. But the door to stealing uh, opened up just a crack at first. And the way it opened was that she was kind of miffed that the hotel wouldn't pay for her parking when she had to work. It was $3 a night. And so she decided, I'm just going to take $3 from the money that I bring in because it just only seems fair to her. But once that door opened, uh, there were a lot of other things that all of a sudden she found a way to justify taking money. For example, they also didn't give her uh, uh, a meal break. And so she thought, you know, it makes sense. If they're not going to give me a meal break, I'll just take a little bit of money that I can buy myself something after. So she took another $6 a night for that. But then all of a sudden, there were all these other things that seemed justifiable, like her rent. She was short on her rent. Her car insurance was due. I'm not sure how, you know, the hotel was responsible. But in her mind, it, all, it became clear the money was there. And so she quickly went from taking $6 a night to two or $300 a night. She learned how to pocket the money when she was counting with all the other assistant bartenders. She, she learned how to peel the tickets from the inside of the roll so that the numbers and the tickets, there wouldn't be a gap when they, when they counted them up. Her biggest night of theft was on a New Year's Eve where she stole $1,000. A lot of alcohol was, I guess, sold that night, but she ended up stealing over about a year and a half, uh, she thinks, about $15,000 in cash. So there were two shocking things as she kind of thought back over this uh, part of her life, uh, two shocking things that I think are helpful for us to understand kind of how sinful actions uh, grab us and also what they do to us. The two things she said was that uh, she didn't realize it at the time, but looking back, she began to get a genuine rush out of stealing money. It was a thrill to her and she began to do things to make it even more risky. Like she began to kind of love it. She would take more money and more money. She would take money at times when her, uh, like her boss was watching just to kind of get a thrill and she, was, she had this adrenaline rush when she would get away with it. She wanted more and more of it. She also, this is strange, she also was attending a Catholic mass every Sunday and she was tithing on the money that she stole. She, she said in a twisted way, she felt like it was, she was in partnership with God. God had given her this opportunity, and how could she waste it? And she was giving him his cut. I mean, it shows us, right, that the practice of sinning kind of normalizes it. She, it all of a sudden became something that she was used to doing, she wanted to do, and it corrupted, it, it corrupts our sense of morality and decency and even our worship to the point that we don't, we don't want it to stop. And, and that's what happened in, in her life. It was very difficult to break free, and that's true of many of us, that when we engage in sin, it begins small, but as it grows, we get to the point where, where actually we can't see things straight, especially moral things. Uh, this is described a few different places in the Bible, but here's one little passage that I think is very helpful. This is John three nineteen and 20. It says this, uh, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world that's Jesus. Uh just got past John 3:16, God sent his son, right? So the light has come into the world, but look, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Because why? Why would they love darkness? Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. See, this is how sin works. This is the danger. Of sin, It makes us love dark, destructive things. It makes us hate the light of God. And it makes sense because as things start small and begin to grow, we, we end up in a depth of darkness that we never intended. And, and we're there and we come to love it and just think that it's normal. And now the greatest thing that we fear is that a light would expose it. So we, we fear the light. We don't, we don't want the light of God. This is always what happens with our sin, before we know it, we are entrenched We're powerless to turn away. As another example, uh, for those of us who were here last Sunday, uh, just think about what we heard and then how we responded. Uh, if you were here last Sunday, we heard a very clear uh, description of the devastating, disappointing dangers of idolatry. I mean, it was a deep dive into the, the disappointing natures of the things that we hope for and live for that are not God. And so if you were a Christian last week and you left, I think you would have to have left with some sense of conviction, right? I left being like, man, I don't, I want everything out of my life that is getting in the way of Jesus. Uh, because the whole point is that we can only be truly satisfied, can find significant security in Jesus. And so we went away feeling like, yes, that's, that's what I want, but my question is, did much change in our life last week? I mean, my guess is that there may have been some, some change, but still last week, after that great realization of all the, the foolishness of idolatry, we still, we still probably bought things to make us feel better. We probably still found our identity in in. in things in our lives, like family, like work, things that shouldn't really be the root of our identity. We still probably ate and drank for the wrong reasons. We still lived for the approval of people rather than enjoying the approval that we have in Christ. We may have made some small changes, but but I think it would be more like maybe we took the idol from the mantelpiece of the living room of of our life, but we didn't destroy it. We just put it in a box in the garage, right? Why didn't we destroy it? Because... In our heart of hearts, we're thinking, you know, I might want that again. I feel like I might want to bring that out. It sure felt good. This is what sin does. Right? We become entrenched in patterns of sin and idolatry. And so the question we should be wondering is: what is God's response? What does God do when this kind of thing happens in the lives of his children? Well, we've already seen. Hebrews 12:6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And the next question then is, well, how? How how does this discipline work? And there are two main ways that God disciplines his children. He does it passively and he does it actively. And both are described in our text. So we're gonna look at each in turn. And here's our second point. Sometimes, sometimes God disciplines us passively. So we're gonna read verses five to seven and see this. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields." So we see the, the pride of Israel and Judah. It's, it's obvious. It's so obvious they're stumbling in their guilt before the Lord. But what's not so obvious is what's going on in verse 6. Because in verse 6, it says, they, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. Why? Because he has withdrawn from them. Which seems really weird. Because the whole point of this is God is saying to his people, Look, you need to seek me, not the false idols. Right that's the problem. They're going to all these other things rather than God. And now now the people are going to God but he hides himself. Why? Why would he do that? Well the answer is in the beginning part of verse 6. It's in the way that they are approaching God. Verse beginning part of verse 6 says with their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord. So flocks and herds are the animals. Uh, for the sacrifice. That's what they did back then. They would bring the animals, sacrifice bulls and goats, whatever it would be, uh, to atone for sin. It was, it was their, their worship. But really what he's saying here is that the people are just going through the motions. They're just doing the, the religious performative things that you do as an Israelite, but that their hearts weren't really in it. That they were seeking the Lord through the actions rather than through the heart. Because those two things are not synonymous. It's possible to do a lot of religious things and not have your heart in it at all. It's, it's possible to come here every Sunday and to sit and sing, to even give some money, to pray, and yet we're kind of just checking off boxes. We don't really have a heart that is interested in knowing Christ deeply and being convicted of sin and drawing near to him. To truly seek him, we can't just be checking a box. It needs to be of the heart. In fact, uh, next chapter... God says this really clearly, Hosea 6.6. 6, he says, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He wants our hearts, not just our actions. So what does God do when his people are entrenched in sin, just going through the motions of faith, are not really trusting him, are not really loving him? Sometimes what he does is in loving discipline, he simply withdraws himself. So they can't find him so they don't have his presence. What he does is he, he in a sense, gives them the life that they seem to want, which is a life without him. They're not really interested in him, and so he withdraws himself so they can experience what that life would be like. Now, on one level, you might say, I don't, that doesn't seem like a really bad consequence. Like, if there's a kid, and the parent said, look, you're getting a consequence. You're being irresponsible and foolish. Here's Here's what's going to happen. You know how what you really want is just to eat junk food all day, never do your homework, stay up late at night, play video games till your eyes water? You, go ahead. That's your consequence. I'm going to withdraw all of my parental supervision and boundaries. Just go and do that as much as you want for as long as you want. I think most kids would be like, say, what? what? That's, that's the consequence, right? Okay. I will gladly take that because that doesn't seem like a consequence. That's what he wants. Or she wants, they want to do that. And now you're saying, I can do that as much as I want? That's that, how is that a consequence? Well, for, to the kid, it doesn't look like a consequence. But as you get older you, and you look back, you can see that isn't actually a gift. That Living that kind of lifestyle is, is really a curse. It doesn't seem like that big a deal, right? To eat, eat junk all the time, never do your homework, play video games, but that kind of life can trap you. If it goes on and on. And you're just left to your own devices. All of a sudden, you're, you're 26, living in your parents' basement with no, with no depth of character, no self-discipline, no skills to actually make something of your life. And the worst part is that probably if, if you are 26 and you've been doing that since you were eight or whatever it is, you probably don't even care because you're used to it. You, you, you just want to be entertained. You want things to come easy you would be experiencing the consequences of your own foolishness. And it's like that when God withdraws from us, but the stakes are much higher. Because we don't, we don't just lose our career goals, we lose sight of goodness itself. This is part of how God responds to us in our, in our sin, to all of humanity. Look, look at Romans 1.28. This is God speaking about sinful humanity. I've kind of highlighted the, the parts that are most applicable. Um, Verse 28, God says, and since they do not see fit to acknowledge God, so sinful human beings, since they don't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to be, to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. See the connection. They didn't want anything to do with God, wanted to just abandon his rules. God says, fine, go and do that. The result, they're filled with sin. And here's the list of all the things, evil, covetousness, malice, Envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, haters of God, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And look at 32, verse 32. Though they knew God's righteous degree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. See, there are some of us here this morning who no longer feel bad about the sin in our lives even though on some level we know it's bad. In fact, we might say that we feel more at peace now than we have in years, even though we're not paying any attention to the sin in our lives. But listen, instead of feeling relief about that, we should feel a sense of dread because it means we've lost all moral bearings. We've we've lost all sense of God. See, God removing his presence is kind of like we develop like a spiritual moral leprosy. Okay, leprosy, that the skin disease, one of the effects of it is that your, your nerve endings would be numbed. So someone who has leprosy, I can't feel pain, which seems like a good thing, but when you actually live like that, what it means is that you keep injuring yourself. Uh, it, you keep burning yourself or cutting yourself or injuring yourself to the point that it deforms your, your hands. They're not usable anymore because you can't, you can't feel the pain anymore. And I think many of us have developed a leprosy of the soul. We're just numb to the effects of sin in our lives. We don't, we don't feel any twinge of conscience, any tugging of the Spirit of God in our hearts, and we think we think it's a good thing. Right? We might say, look, I finally, I finally have peace. See, see, I, did, I didn't need God in the first place. I mean, if I were really doing something bad, wouldn't, wouldn't God say something? Wouldn't God somehow communicate that to me? And the answer is, Maybe, or maybe he's allowing you to experience the life that you want without him. No conviction, no remorse, no softness of heart towards the things of God, which again, seems, seems great in a sense, but, but have you thought of where that goes? Where that ends? Have you thought that maybe God is withdrawing himself so that we would see the wickedness within us? We'd see the destruction that's coming if we don't repent, There's one one main requirement for getting into hell. And and that is that you want nothing to do with God. Okay, those are the people that are there. They want nothing to do with God's law, God's presence, God's blessings, God's provision, and, and you get that for all of eternity, which is why it is suffering. But God loves us. So sometimes he withdraws from us in the hopes that we would wake up. We would begin to see some of the connections. That, that, that the sin is growing, that the heart of, of heart is growing, that we can see where he leads us. Sometimes, sometimes he disciplines us passively by withdrawing himself, but sometimes he disciplines us actively. Uh, I'm going to read now the majority of the rest of our text, from 8 to 14. Uh, in this section, you're going to see a lot of references to Israel's sinfulness again, but I want you to notice the difference now in the way that God responds, Okay, he he doesn't just withdraw his presence. Now we're going to see that he brings active judgment, active opposition against his people, which is depicted in a a bunch of, uh, frankly, terrifying ways. So here's verses 8 to 14. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at Beth Haven, we follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure, says God. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like the moth to Ephraim, and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off, and no one shall rescue. There's a lot going on there. Uh, the beginning part, the trumpets and that kind of thing, it's, it's like God is sounding the alarm of what is to come. It's like an air raid siren warning people to get somewhere safe. But the question is, what, what are they to be afraid of? What is the danger that is coming? Uh, Is it the Assyrians? They they are marshalling their troops. They are the empire that's growing, waiting to come in. They want to take over everything. So you see a reference to that, that they try to go and try to make things right with the Assyrians, but that it it doesn't work. There is that danger coming, but the real danger being talked about here is not outside of the community of God's people. It's it's God himself. He is the danger that they're being warned about. And notice how he depicts himself. He says, I will pour out my wrath like water, like like a flood, like the flood of Noah. He says, I am like a moth. I am like dry rot, like a wound that can't be healed, like a lion that tears his prey and leaves them for dead. God's point is that he will not stay withdrawn or passive forever. All of these images are pictures of the ultimate judgment against sin, but it's, it's not just terrifying imagery. It's not just foreshadowing of what is to come because God actually does bring this kind of adversity and pain into the lives of his people to discipline, to correct, to ensure that our hearts are actually full of faith rather than full of other lesser things. We know that because the Assyrians, they actually do come in and they bring incredible pain, destruction into the lives of God's people for the purpose of discipline, which should tell us that at times God is the one who causes the precious things of our lives to rot and to corrode. That at times, he is the one who allows us to be afflicted by wounds that will not heal. At times, he tears at us physically and emotionally to the point that it it feels like he's abandoned us. It feels like he's against us, but in fact, he's loving us. Those those two things, man, they don't seem to go together. That that kind of, Uh, affliction, that kind of pain would somehow be associated with God's love. But there's a verse in our passage from next week that, that shows how they go together. Here's Hosea 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. It may sound strange because what it means, what it means is that God doesn't just allow pain to happen but there are times where he is the source of it, the the, the tearing and the striking, the affliction itself, which again is is difficult to wrap our heads around, but but think of it this way. See, God isn't like those misguided, selfish parents who only shower their children with positive reinforcement. He he doesn't keep giving us new toys and treats and screen time to pacify us, and he isn't so self-involved that he ignores the sinful tendencies growing in our hearts. He loves us too much for that. So however you want to say it, he he allows, he brings, he permits, he causes a lot of pain in our lives. Not not to beat us down, not to leave us for dead, but so that we would see clearly, so that we would love clearly, so that we would hope clearly, so that we would know whether our faith is true. It's really easy to be a, a quote unquote good kid when all your parents ever do is give you give you what you want, right? Every time you begin to get upset and wail, here's another candy, here's another device, whatever it is, that's the real test of our character, the real test of our faith and goodness is what happens when a parent says no, when when we get pushed back. The challenge, of course, in all of this is that it often feels more painful than we think it needs to be. Like I think probably most of us would say, look, I get it. I get it. I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm sinful. I'm going to need some correction. I'm going to need some discipline. Uh, that makes sense, that God would do something in my life. But, but this, this thing that's been going, this, this is too much. I, I don't need this much discipline. This is too painful. Whatever that is, whatever that life situation, whatever that hardship there are things that we, we really wrestle. How can, how can that be for my good? How can that actually be used? It's, it's so hard. And, and even if I were to accept the fact that God is using it for my good, how do I make it through? Like if I can't even make it through today, how am I going to make it through the next, the next weeks or months or years of this, kind of this kind of affliction? How do I do it? It's interesting because uh, when it comes to these kinds of questions, God actually gives us a direct answer. It's almost like he's, he's anticipated that his children will struggle with his discipline. And so in the book of Hebrews that we looked at before, there's a whole passage where God basically just explains, look, this is what discipline is. This is what I'm doing in your life. So I normally don't kind of read through big chunks of scripture in addition to our text, but I think it's better this time just to let God speak for himself. just just for you to hear uh, from him through the author of Hebrews. But this is God explaining discipline and anticipating the, the weariness that we might feel. So here's Hebrews 12, 5 to 17. God says, "'My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, "'nor be weary when reproved by him. "'For the Lord disciplines the one he loves "'and chastises every son whom he receives.'" For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, this is key, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. That's that's the whole point. Therefore, verse 12, Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, And make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. There's a lot in here that is helpful for us in terms of discipline. But two things, in, in, in specific, to respond to the, the difficulty of it. Number one, discipline always seems more painful than it needs to be. In, in, from the perspective of the one being disciplined. This is why kids cry and wail. This is why teenagers stomp and slam doors, why we get angry. We're we're saying it's too hard, it's too much. It feels feels too much. But what we need to understand is that the person being disciplined, they're not not the ones who usually see clearly about how much discipline they need. Because kids would always say, right, an hour without screens, that's enough. I really feel it. I learned my lesson. Mm, I I don't know. I think it's going to take more than that because the parent knows the heart. The parent can see the depth of of whatever it is, the the bad attitude, the sin, and because the parent has the the target in view of a a godly character. And so they know where it's going and that's the second thing we see. God, God knows where this is going, where he wants it to go. God always disciplines us for our eternal good. That's the goal. So the pain of discipline is justified because God has our eternal good in mind. He doesn't want us to end up like Esau. See, Esau, if you know the story, made a foolish decision. He sold his birthright, the blessing from his father, for a bowl of of stew. Totally, utterly foolish, um, ridiculous, but that isn't the point that's being made here in Hebrews. The point is that when Esau finally realized his error, it was too late. He couldn't take it back. There was no more chance to repent. See, God knows what we often forget that there will be a day for each of us when it's too late to repent. Too late to turn back to God in faith. And that is the day that God is preparing us for. The day of judgment, the day of our death, the day day when the door is open either to eternal blessing in the presence of God or eternal condemnation. Heaven or hell open to us on that day. And what he's saying is, look, there's gonna be a lot of days between now and then. But all of the hard days will be worth it if we are ready on that day. If we are prepared to enter the kingdom of heaven. But all of the easy days between now and then won't be worth it at all if we're not ready. If we're not prepared. If we aren't convicted about our sin. If we aren't trusting in God in the right way. And the door to hell is open for us. None of the ease is worth it. The goal is that we would come to a genuine place of repentance. A life of repentance. And our section in Hosea ends with, with this actually, last verse, verse 15. God says this, I will return again to my place, like I will withdraw, until, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. See, that's the goal, that's what he wants, that their hearts would be in it. All, all of this pain, all of this withdrawing all this active discipline, the purpose is clear, that his people would earnestly seek him. And by earnestly, he means that they would have clarity about their sin, that they would, they would see the depth of it. They would see their proclivity for it. They would see how entrenched in it they, they've become, how they love the darkness and that they would see it and be fearful of it and repent in turn. And that means they need to see the sin clearly, but also God clearly. They, they, we need to recognize that he is and has always been our only hope. That yes, yes, God is the lion that cares and destroys, but, but he's also the lamb, right? Jesus is the lion of Judah, but also the lamb who was slain for us. That's the wonder of this God, that, that his depth of love is on full display. He's not like the parent who's too harsh, just always this hard judgment and there's no love we are bathed in the grace and love and mercy of god we know his love because he's shown it to us he's given everything for us and so when he disciplines we know the context we know the heart behind it now some may say look look i just that that kind of god isn't for me all of that discipline all of that pain all the rules i mean to me it just sounds like authority sounds like power sounds like control I don't want him, which, which is fine. It's, it's your decision. But before you close the door completely, can, can I just ask you to stop and think for a minute about what kind of parent you really want to have? Like, like on this earth, for example, not, not when you're eight, but when you're 28, what kind of parent would you want to have had? Would you want to have had the parent who just lets you do whatever you want? Just for all those years, all through your teenage years, no discipline, no discipline, No intentional pushing back, no instruction. Just live the life you want to live or do you want the parent who loves you enough to discipline, to bring instruction, to do the hard work of having those conversations and pushing you back and and scolding and reprimanding for the sake of shaping your heart to, to put you in a position of actually living a fruitful and productive life. And if you can see the love of that kind of parenting, can you not also have faith to believe that God is at work? Even in the discipline right now in your life, even in the pain and the hardship. And will you not earnestly seek him? This is is the goal of the text here. And I want to cap it off just by um, sharing a little analogy, illustration that I think crystallizes this. Um, I came across this. There's a book that Don and I read called Streams in the Desert. It's like a devotional book. Uh, L.B. Kalman, it's an old book. But uh, here's something that I I think gives a good picture of what God is doing. Uh, He says this, Around the turn of the century, A bar of steel was worth about $5, yet when it was forged into horseshoes, it was worth about $10. When it was made into needles, its value was $350. When used to make small uh, pocket knife blades, its worth was $32,000. And when it was made into springs for watches, the value increased to $250,000. Same bar of steel. Here's what he says. What a pounding. The steel bar had to endure to be worth this much. But the more it was shaped and hammered and put through fire, beaten, pounded, and polished, the greater its value. May we use this analogy as a reminder to be still, silent, and long-suffering. For it is those who suffer the most who yield the most. And it is through pain that God gets the most out of us for his glory and for the blessing of others. It's difficult in the pain. I get it. This week, for me as well, there's times on my knees where I think, Lord, I, I don't know if I can make it through this day or this situation. And I wonder, how, how, Lord? Why, Lord? It's so important for us to have answers to those questions. For us to be able to remind ourselves in those times of just angst-ridden, not despair, but I don't know how I can do it, to, to look here and say, I actually, I do know how because I can see what God is wanting to do in me. And I can pray in faith that God would give me the strength to endure so that I would be shaped, so that it'd be soft and malleable and that my heart and my character would grow, so that it actually would be able to bring glory to him and bring good to others. It's only gonna happen if if I'm confronted in my sin and I'm shaped in the way that he wants me to be shaped. So so may may we be encouraged May we not be weary like it says there in Hebrews. And may we not resist the discipline of the Lord in our lives, for it's out of love. Let me pray that for us as we close. Lord Jesus, you've made it so clear that, that you really love us. You came down from heaven to be near to us, to go to the cross, to, to pay for our sins, something we can never do, and yet it's it's still a struggle for us, Lord, to understand how it is that you work in our lives. When times of trial come, we so quickly abandon or forget the things that we know are true about you. So would you help us, please? I pray, Lord, for those for whom this this is not theoretical. This is this is real. There's pain today, physical pain, emotional pain, relational pain. It's it's. It's hard and it looks like it's gonna continue. Would you help us t- to see clearly that all of these things you will use for our good? That, that whether, we- whether we can see right away some overt sin that needs to be repented of or simply there's-, there's things that we don't even see Maybe we trust that you see them clearly and you are-, you are allowing everything, causing everything to bring good into our lives, to bring us nearer to you. So please, Lord, help us to be soft-hearted in this way. Help us to be humble. Help us to to repent. May we not reach the end and run out of time. And Lord, the truth is we don't know when the end is coming. So I pray for all who are here. Lord, may we respond in faith to your grace and to your love and to the conviction that comes through your discipline. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.